0: Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 60. It's a passage that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning, Isaiah, chapter 60. And if you don't have a Bible, as I didn't this morning, having forgotten all of mine at home, at least with this translation, you can ask Jake. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate the loan of the Bible this morning. So if you need one... Don't ask Jake, his is mine today, but you can ask someone else and they'll help you. So Isaiah chapter 60, Uh, this is the Word of God. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people's But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedar's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple." Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut, day or night, so that people may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish. It will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together, to adorn my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place for my feet. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Although you have been forsaken, And hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever." They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands, for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. Well, I don't know uh, exactly what your summer has been like so far, probably fast for most of us, um, but we gather here together from whatever our life circumstances are, and so let's just take a moment individually just to catch our breath, catch our spiritual breath, take a moment to pray. This is an individual before the Lord. Ask Him to, to be with you uh, this morning, to open His Word to you, to give you insight, to give you a receptive heart. But Also, if there's, if there's something weighing on your heart, something that's on your mind, the Lord already knows it, but just lay it out before Him. And after a few moments, I'll lead us together in prayer. Our Father, this morning we want to worship You, and to do that we need to know who You are, and so we pray that You will uh, reveal Yourself to us, help us to understand You. We know that You reveal Yourself in a variety of ways, um, but most importantly is by Your Spirit using Your Word. And so we pray this morning that you will open your word to us. Uh, give us attentive and active, lively minds to grasp your revelation, but also open hearts to receive it, um, and, and spirits that are interested in righteousness, uh, so that there is fertile soil for the word uh, to, to germinate and take root and to grow and to produce a harvest of righteousness in the end. Lord, we would think of those uh, who are normally with us, who are away, uh, perhaps on vacation, perhaps ill, and we would ask that you would be with them, Lord, wherever they are, that you would draw them close to yourself, that you would minister to their hearts. We would pray for those uh, who are in this building but in a different room right now. Uh, we think of our the nursery, the children's ministry. Lord, we pray that it will actually be ministry, uh, that it won't just be babysitting, but that there will be Uh, things that are done, things that are accomplished uh, in Your kingdom, uh, even here and now. Lord, we ask that You would fill us with Your Spirit for Your name's sake. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see You and not to turn away. For we ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this, this last week... Uh, I was speaking at a Bible conference at Wesley Acres in Prince Edward County, just south of Belleville, uh, where it's, it's on a little peninsula, and you can see the Sandbanks Provincial Park just across the water. Some of you have probably been there, and so you uh, know how beautiful that area is. And so it's, it's free Methodist country uh, up there, and Wesley Acres is a free Methodist and so it was uh, really wonderful for me to have the opportunity to be there uh, to speak and to preach. And the group that was there was was incredibly receptive, uh, just just absolutely a delight uh, and a joy to to teach and minister uh, in those contexts. Uh, Jake was up at NBC uh, ministering to the youth this last week as well. And the reports that I have heard, I recommended him for that, and the reports that I have heard have been very very good although I only talked to him. Uh, so I, I don't know, I have, to, I have to actually contact my contacts up there and get their perspective, but Jake seemed to think he did a, just a fantastic job. You know, he, he was speaking on uh, humility and such, and so it was just perfect that he came back with that kind of report. No, it, uh, I, Jake, I, I mean, we, we tease each other a lot, but I wouldn't have recommended you if I didn't think you'd do all of us credit uh, here at the church. And so it's great to, to work with someone who you can trust uh, in that way as well. So we were, we were off ministering in different places. The Wesley Acre folk were extremely gracious, which was nice, actually, because I have never in my life destroyed more camp property than I did this last week. Uh, entirely accidentally, I assure you. Uh, one night I was making, a, making a, a campfire, and so I was chopping wood. The dusky, is a little bit dark, and you know if you're if you're chopping wood, uh, it, it's su- it can be difficult depending on the wood that you're chopping. If you don't have a nice stone or a nice stump that you can put place the wood on to chop, if it's just the earth, you know there's there's so much give in the ground, it's really hard to chop through. And so I drove the axe into a particularly tough piece of wood, uh, and uh, it didn't split. So oh, that's fine. So then, then, all you do, of course, you know, if you, if you chop whatever, is then you just pick up the axe with the wood stuck on the end, and you swing it down, and that drives it through. So you do that into the earth, and, and nothing happens. So I was looking around, and, and there's no stones, or no no rocks of sufficient size, and I wasn't going to chop down a tree to have a stump. And and so I thought, well, well, here's the trailer, and, and there's there's a couple of patio stones just off the trailer. Well, that's that's pretty solid. I and mean, that'll, that'll do the job. So, so I drove the, the wood, the axe on it, down into that, that patio stone, and, and, and the wood didn't split. Well, I'll just try it again. did it again, and a third time, and nothing much was happening, so I just sort of kicked the wood off from the axe and looked down, and i had shattered the patio stone. It's a big, pulverized indentation about the size of the log with fractures running through the rest of the stone. And so that wasn't my finest moment, although I was proud, too, you know, <laughs> that, I, that I had done that. I, I actually had to tell them to, to send the bill to the church marked for the renovation fund. What's a patio stone compared to all that we're doing? So that might be coming in. But the worst thing was, was that actually happened just a couple hours after uh, I had been out canoeing and and if you 've ever been out canoeing you 've probably at some point had the misfortune not of using you know beautiful wooden paddles but using the the ones with the, the sort of silver aluminum shafts and you know the black plastic you know blades and all the rest now, a really fun canoeing party trick which i 've done hundreds of times is if you take the, those aluminum paddles and you hold the end they 're made to float and so you can Fire them down into the water, and hold your hand out. And depending on how good the throw was, after a second or two or three, it'll come shooting back up right into your hand. I've done it hundreds of times. Now it, you have to practice because if you throw it off at an angle, it shoots out on an angle. Then you're in a canoe watching your paddle float <laughs> away down the river or whatever it is. So, so I decide I'm I'm going to do this and throw it down. And it comes back up. It's just fun. Now, I decided I really wanted to do this well. So you sort of line it up, fired it down, and it was a good throw. Leave my hand out. And there was this one moment where all of a sudden my, there was a flip in my mental cognition where I realized this isn't the best throw of my life. It's not coming back. Like, I can't throw a paddle that deeply into the water. And so I just stood there, sat actually, in the canoe, waiting. And then I realized something. As buoyant as these paddles are, when you throw the paddle down into a weed bed, (laughs) it might get caught in the weeds and not come back up. Now, I tried every levitation occultic command I could (laughs) to bring it back up, and it would not come back up. Now, regrettably, we were also in a place of some fairly significant wind and current. So by the time I realized it wasn't coming back up, and we drifted a little bit, I started to realize I also have no idea where it went in. You know, it's in this sort of, it's gone. So I had to go to the office and sort of explain to them just sort of, you know, just theoretically, what would happen if someone came back just with one less paddle than they took out? And and the lady was very kind. And she laughed. She said, "Oh, don't worry, it'll wash to shore." Not convinced, actually. <laughs> um, under normal circumstances, maybe it would, but but I'm not sure here. You know, it's just one of those times where you realize. The power of words is not always sufficient to actually manipulate reality. You know, you, you have mind over matter all of you all you want, but commanding things or or, or casting your incantations to, to levitate these paddles out of weeds isn't always effective. Now that actually does show a little bit. About how different the power of Jesus is compared to us. Uh, I remember years and years and years ago. In fact, like, Jake, you might have been part of this group. I, I don't remember when you were just a little kid um, at uh, at a camp where, where Jake was. I was uh, like the the kids' Bible teacher, which like how horrifying is that to think about? Uh, so I'm trying to teach these kids. And so we go down to a creek where there's rapids. Do you, do you remember any of this? Were you there? Were you part of this? And I, just, and I told them to, to tell the water to stop flowing. Was that? Were you there? He was. It was. <laughs> so we're commanding the water to stop flowing, and then because they're little, some of them were little boys, you know, they start throwing rocks at the water because that's going to stop the water from flowing. We did everything we could to make the water stop flowing, and we couldn't. And Jesus speaks to a storm, peace be still. And all of a sudden, it's all calm. Jesus says in John 11, when Lazarus is dead, and Jesus intentionally waits so that he goes down after four days. At this time, the Jews believed that the spirit of a dead person hovered around the body for three days. And then when it saw that there was no chance whatsoever of sort of uh, being revived, then it would depart. Jesus waits just long enough to ensure the Spirit is gone in sort of in terms of popular thought. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth! And the dead man comes out of the tomb. See, the, the Word of God, the command of God, the command of Jesus actually transforms material reality. The command of Jesus actually empowers and confers ability that you don't have naturally. Lazarus cannot come back to life. But when Jesus commands him, to, Jesus not only gives him sort of verbal instruction, but in the giving of the verbal instruction is the power to accomplish it. When Jesus says to the storm, be still, His word cannot fail. Here, if you've been tracking with Isaiah, when you get to this line, arise, shine, for your light has come, you know perfectly well that people are not capable of arising this way. The power comes in the command itself. So, when God commands the people to arise, they're actually empowered to do so. He imparts ability to them through the word of command. Arise. It's time to get up. Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. What the prophet is commanding the people, what the Lord is commanding the people is to get up and recognize His glory, to live in the atmosphere of who He is, to begin to actually orient themselves into the environment of His revealed glory. The contrast is in verse 2, see, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Now the darkness here is sort of you know deep, fearful gloom. It's a metaphor for sin and despair, uh, discouragement, depression, death, and it's in this matrix. And and, and it's interesting too that it says that that this darkness covers the whole earth. It's true. You you start investigating society. You start looking around globally. You begin to discover that that the world really does in large part, sort of exist under a dark cloud, to shift the metaphor just slightly. People are aware of this. Uh, for one of the first times in history, a lot of people now actually believe that the future is going to be worse than the past. Uh, a lot of the younger generation are sort of looking around, and this isn't just North America, this is this is globally as well, although in a, in, in a, it's a very unique the way it positions or ca- gets cashed out here. But a lot of people today are sort of looking at their parents or grandparents, and, and they're saying, I'll never have that sort of standard of living. The, 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 life's too expensive. Jobs aren't that good. Like, they just, we're not going to sort of enjoy what previous generations enjoyed, particularly also in terms of sort of social rest. Now, there's some, there's some utility in a bit of social unrest. Uh, one wouldn't have just wanted to keep the status quo uh, back in uh, the southern U.S. before Martin Luther King Jr., for example. So, so a bit of social unrest isn't always bad. It can be necessary. But on balance, you, you'd like a little bit of peace, too. And as people look around sort of at, our, at our global situation, but also our particular North American societies, it seems that they're characterized by less and less peace and more and more um, polarization more and more splintering into special interest groups. And so for a lot of people, there's just a lot of discouragement. There's a lot of darkness. And so thick darkness is over the people's, but but the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. In other words, when you're told to arise and shine, it's not because of sort of the, the intrinsic light and goodness of your own self. It's because you can reflect the glory of God. You you can be like a prism. The light doesn't come through you, but the light can shine through you. The light can be refracted through you. You Somewhat like the moon, of course. You know that the moon isn't its own light source. The the moon reflects the light of the sun. And so that's sort of what we are. You know, God is the sun, but we are positioned like the moon. So the glory, the light of God shines upon us... And in the, unique, in the unique way that God has made us to be, our light shines as well. So, so, is there moonlight? Absolutely, but it's reflected sunlight off the moon. That's how the people of God are supposed to be. We're not supposed to be trying to impress people by how wonderful we are. We're supposed to be trying to impress people by how wonderful God is. And part of that wonder is that God can even reveal His glory through people like us. I mean, that's that's just utterly amazing. And so even when we present ourselves in terms of evangelism, you want to be very careful that you're not just trying to tell people, look, oh, look, you know, look at my life. Don't, Don't you want to be just like me? I mean, the reality is probably people don't want to be just like us, but they should want to be like Jesus so we want to do our best to say, look, it's not because I have it all together. It's actually because God is so gracious. He can even save someone like me. That's the hope. The hope isn't that somehow I've earned it or I contribute merit to this. The hope is that God in His grace shines His glory upon me. Arise. But it's time to enter into this. That's a command. It's time for the people of God to enter into His glory. It's time for the people of God to stop living mediocre lives. It's time for the people of God to stop living just like the world, except we spend our money 2% differently. 2% is about the average that, that evangelicals give to, uh, to church and charitable causes, just so you know, statistically. That, that we, we watch virtually all the same streams of entertainment, but just draw the lines in a couple places where others don't. No, it's, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. It, it's time to start living an otherworldly life. It's time to get out of the darkness. It's time to step out of the deep gloom. God offers you a life lived in His glory, and He tells you to enter into it. If we do... Now, it is worth saying this, of course, that in context, Isaiah is writing to Israel. Uh, He's writing to Israel. This this becomes clear, too, in terms of post-exilic, that they're coming back out of the exile. So these are, in the first instance, this is directed there. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. You live uh, reflecting the glory of God, and kings will be attracted to you. Royalty will come to you. Kings will come to the brightness of your dawn. Nations will come to your light. Why? Because there's nothing like the radiant light and glory of God anywhere to be found in this world. There's nothing like it. There's nothing that compares to it. And so where you have this reflection of the light of God, it will be attractive to people. Lift up your eyes and look about you all assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. This is the return from exile. They've been punished. The nation has been destroyed, and people have been carted off to Babylon. God's bringing them back. And here what you have is basically the the children being carried in arms, carried on the hip. They're being born back. God is making sure these children are coming back in safety. And and then God says that if you see this, when you see sort of the light and the glory, when, when the exile is over, then at that time you will look and be radiant. You know, you will beam with joy, you will beam with delight when you see God bringing exile to an end. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. That sounds pretty good. There's almost a violence in the passion here. It's so strong. It's so pure. It's so God ordained. You know, our, our our affections can be misdirected, but but they're never too strong when it comes to God and when it comes to what He is doing. Your heart will throb, will pound in your chest. It will swell until you feel like you're bursting with joy. And that's how it ought to be. That's how God wants us to respond. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. The, the, the pirates won't, won't capture the vessel and cart off the wealth, They'll, and it'll come to you. The riches of the nations will come. Why is all this wealth coming to you? Why are herds of camels covering the land? Why is there all this gold and incense? Why is all the wealth flooding in? It's the end of verse 6, proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Then verse 7, all these rams and flocks, they will be accepted as offerings on my altar. I will adorn my glorious temple. God is bringing in the wealth of the nations, and people are bringing their wealth to praise Him. This is for the sanctuary. All of these animals, all of these herds, these are for, this is for the sacrificial system. This is to honor God. So everything in the world is being designed to bring honor and glory to God. The children are coming with silver and gold to the honor, verse 9, to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Why? For He has endowed you with splendor. This is an amazing thing. The great God is, is, is gathering people who are bringing their gifts and offerings to Him, and what He is doing is He is endowing them with splendor. He, he is blessing them. He is making them radiant. He is filling their heart with joy. He's is filling their heart with love. This is what God does for these people as they come to meet with Him. In the exile, of course, the city was destroyed. Here it's being rebuilt in verses 10 through 14. Foreigners will rebuild your walls. Their kings will serve you. In anger, I struck you in favor. I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They'll never be shut day or night. Why? Well, I mean, the reason that at night they shut the gates is for safety. So you get this in Revelation as well. When the gate of the city is never shut, it's because there's no danger at all. God has created an an environment where you don't need to have any fear whatsoever. The gates can stand open the whole time. It's like saying, you know, you you, you never need to lock your doors ever again. The gates are open. Day and night, people are continually bringing in their wealth. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place for my feet. So what you have here is this imagery of the rebuilt city and a revitalized created order, which is here sort of characterized by trees. All these various trees being brought to glorify God. All the wealth of the nations being brought to glorify God. The city rebuilt. Park gardens being established. Now, I, I will confess that just yesterday... Just yesterday. There's a it's a beautiful, beautiful oak tree. And it was an amazing trunk. And I just sad to see if I get my arms around it. You know? And you do too. In your secret times you hug trees too. Don't deny it. <laughs> I'm just bold enough to say it. And and you know, you, you feel that strength and that life. All of those decades of growth. It's an incredible thing. Think about all the, the, all the storms, all the things that those trees endure, all that they stick it out through. Then you know, too, that what you're seeing towering above you, all the, at this time of year, all the, the, the leaves and, and the greenery and all the rest, you can just see under the ground The root system of these things is incredible. And God says, I'm going to rebuild the city to my glory. I'm going to establish these oases of trees and parkland and garden. The best of, of the city combined with the best of the nature I have made all together. I'm going to be glorified that way, city and nature. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet, your enemies are are no more, and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. They will call you the city, interestingly enough, but it's the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, notice this very carefully. The work that God is doing here, as much as it is an enormous blessing for the people, it's really about His name. The city is called the City of the Lord. He is the one who owns it. He is the one to whom it belongs. He is the one who receives glory in it. So the city is rebuilt. It's a blessing for the people, but ultimately it is for the name of the Lord. It'll be called Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is very important. This is desperately important to understand that what God does, he does for his own name's sake. He does to make His name glorious, because the more His name is perceived as glorious, because God can't actually make Himself more glorious than He already is naturally, or intrinsically rather. He is, he is maximally glorious through the sheer existence of His being. But it is we who need to perceive Him as glorious. We need to grow in our capacity to understand how glorious He is. He, he doesn't improve in glory. He, he's infinitely glorious. You can't add to that. But it's us. You need to see how glorious He is. And so God will make His name glorious. That is, God will reveal His glory to the nations so that they will come to Him, so that they will be impressed by the city, so they will come to know the Holy One of Israel. Though you have been forsaken and hated with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at royal breasts. It's actually fascinating in terms of uh, a mixed metaphor here. Literally, it's you will drink the milk of nations and be nursed at the breasts of kings. Now you're you're dealing with a metaphor. Okay, this is not a it's not a comment about you know ancient physiology. Clearly, nations don't have milk. Kings don't have breasts. The idea here is to take the epitome of royalty, that is, the king, patriarchal context, and the epitome of nourishing, sustaining care, that's nursing. So you combine them, you mix the metaphor. The milk of nations, the breasts of kings. The idea is that you could not be more royally taken care of and nourished. Royalty itself gives you life. God Himself is the one who gives you life as the great king. And when this happens, When you nurse at royal breasts, when God brings it about, then you will know that He is the Lord and He is your Savior. When He brings it about that you are maximally nourished at the breast of the King, then you will have no doubt whatsoever that not only is He the Lord, but He has saved you, that He loves you, that He redeems you. That's the next next term. I am the Lord, that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer. That is, He buys you out of your circumstances and gives you blessing. I am the mighty one of Jacob. As I stand in covenant faithfulness to my people, I am the mighty one. I'm able to bring this about. I can nourish you tenderly because I am so strong. Your Savior, your Redeemer. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold. So you are nursed at the breasts of kings and you are given gold. This is what God does. When God does that, on that day you will know in a new experiential way what it means to have the Lord as your Savior and your Redeemer. I'll br- instead of bronze, I will bring you gold, silver in place of iron. Instead of wood, I will bring you bronze, and iron in place of stones. In other words, God is going to, instead of giving you what's good, God is going to give you what's best. He's going to give you what's better and better and better and better categorically in every way. You thought you wanted this, God could give you that, but He's not going to. He's going to give you something better. You would have settled for bronze, but He'll give you gold. I will make peace your governor and well-being your ruler. That sounds pretty good. To be governed by peace to have well-being itself ruling over you. When that happens, no longer will violence be heard in your land nor ruin or destruction within your borders. And this is, this is something we should pray for, something we should long for, for the day of fulfillment of this. No more violence. It's such a violent world. It's such a violent society. And for a day when when peace really is the ruler and there's no more violence of any kind to be found in the land, no more ruin, no more destruction. But instead of that, the walls themselves are called salvation. The gates themselves are called praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. The Lord Himself will be your light. The sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. Now, this is where you clearly, again, see that it, this, is, this is obviously figurative language. Because what you just have in verse 19 is that the sun will no more be your light, the brightness of the moon, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, so you basically, so you read that, you know, well, there's it seems like there's no more sun, there's no more sunlight, and the moon isn't shining, there's no brightness of the moon either. So it seems like the sun and the moon are done away with. But the next verse says, Your sun will never set again. Because it's always there, always shining. Your moon will wane no more, meaning, meaning that the moon itself will always be at sort of at maximum brightness. Always, you have to, I mean, just this is just off to the side. This is just for free. This is one of the reasons why you just have to love language. Right? Because, because there's just a sort of a strict contradiction here, but it's not a contradiction at all. It's, it's, it's beautifully playing with the images, evoking different sentiments, different, different ideas just, just playfully around the edges so that you don't, the sun's not your light anymore, the moon doesn't shine anymore, but the sun never sets again, and, and the moon never wanes again. The Lord will be your everlasting light. That's the point. Sun or moon, oh, it's God that's my source of light, my everlasting light. You can't help but think of Revelation, of course, new heavens, new earth, no more sun, moon, etc. Be interesting. Be interesting if there is a sun and a moon. Uh, You you can't just just read the language overly literally at that point. This this, this passage tells you you can't. So what what will it be like? I don't know, but it's going to be good. The Lord will be your light. He will be your everlasting light. And notice the parallelism. So these verses 19 and 20 are constructed in par- to, to parallel each other. Obviously, you're supposed to take the, the references to sun and moon in 19 and 20. You're supposed to think about them, puzzle that out, worry that out a little bit. But then the Lord will be your everlasting light. Verse 19, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Verse 20 in the end of 19, and your God will be your glory, that stands in parallel contrast with 20, and your days of sorrow will end. But do you know in this kind of construction, those last terms are just two different ways of saying the same thing? In other words, when God is your glory, your days of sorrow are done. When God is your glory, your days of sorrow are over. They are at an end. Think about, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the, the little poem about when, when Aslan comes back, you know, and all the bad times are over and done. That's what Isaiah is saying. When the glory of God in consummated splendor shines on us, the days of sorrow are done. The bad times, all the bad times are over and done. They're gone. And they're gone forever. The days of sorrow will end. Then, at that time, all your people will be righteous. Now, this is obviously now looking eschatologically well past anything in this world. All of your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. And so what God is doing is He's he's putting His glory on people. He is their light. Their days of sorrow are done. Why? Because they're righteous now. Think about you know, Second Peter, that, that they live in the home of righteousness. Even the end of Revelation, the new heavens and new earth. All of God's righteous people, everyone in God's covenant community now in consummated fulfillment of righteousness. That's what they are, living in the, in the light of God. All the sorrow, gone forever. All the violence and turmoil and chaos and sin, gone forever. This is what God grows. This is God's garden. There the shoot I have planted. The work of my hands. And the image here is, is, is God getting down into the dirt and, 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 and scraping out, and hollowing out uh, that, that, that divot in the earth to, and then taking that shoot and, and putting it down. Then... then smoothing the soil back around it. This is the shoot I have planted, God says. It's not not a shock that God's a gardener. That's how the Bible starts. And so he, he, He plants this. He plants this shoot, the work of His hands, and it begins to grow. And when it has fruit, the fruit is the splendor of God. This is the shoot I have planted for the display of my splendor. Do you know that's really what the fruit of the spirit in Galatians is about? The fruit of the spirit is the fruit that God is getting from the shoots that he has planted. You are the garden of God. And the fruit that He's looking for is love and joy and peace, etc. But you're God's garden. Think about all the agricultural agrarian metaphors in in the parables of Jesus. He's producing a harvest in you for the display of His splendor. Next time you're out in a garden or walking by a property that has flowers or, or whatever, just stop and take stock that you are the garden of God. Your gardener, the gardener of your soul is Yahweh. And He's working in you to display His glory. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest, a mighty nation. I am the Lord. And then the words that give hope, which are so hard to hear. In its time, I will do this swiftly. Hope, wait. In its time, say, God, all please. Isn't the time now? Isn't the time this exact second? I'm not talking about after lunch. I mean now. Uh, He says, I am the Lord. In its time. Which really is him saying, in my time. I will do this. Swiftly, that is when it's time. God is not going to delay. He is going to do it. He's going to do it fast. He's going to do it well. He's going to do it thoroughly. He's going to do it perfectly, in His time. It's one of the hardest things about a human being. About being human is waiting for the time of God. It's one of the hardest things. One of the hardest things of all is to see what these consummated promises and blessings look like to be able to just touch it just there. God says, "Be patient and walk by faith. Don't walk by sight. It's tough. That's tough. But you come back to it and you say, "Well, I'm not God. He is the Lord. All of these blessings, all these promises, they, we, they will be fulfilled. They will. In His time, He will do it swiftly. Although you can't help, it's pleasing and honoring to God, you can't help but be like Paul. Maranatha it is: come, Lord, come on, come back. The end of Revelation, after considering the fulfillment of these things, He says, Even so, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The desire of the people of God. Let's see this brought to fulfillment. Well, the promise is there nonetheless. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do it swiftly. Well, may God help us to wait and to hope uh, for His time and for all of His purposes. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.